Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to New Hope Church Online. We're so glad that you are joining us. And if this is your first time joining us, would you go ahead and just drop that in the chat and let us know that, hey, I'm joining, I'm watching this for the first time. I'm, I'm being a part of our church service because that's so awesome. And we want to just greet everybody that's online. Thank you so much for being a part of New Hope Church Online. And right now, at this time, we're going to get ready to receive our tithes and offerings. Now, uh, some of you may know this. I have, I have five children. Yes, five. And I have three older kids. My oldest is going to be eight later on this month. And then her name is Caitlin. And then I have Brianne, who's my second oldest. She's six. And then you have our third oldest, who's Adrian. And she's actually going to be four uh, early next month. And, you know, being a dad, uh, I, I, it's, so, it's so much fun. And one of the greatest things about being a dad is when my kids make something for me. How many parents can, can, can uh, uh, know what that is? You know, like, when, when is the last time your kids made you something? Like, my kids, they love to draw. And so they'll take paper, they'll color, and, they'll, uh, and whatever. They'll draw whatever. Their imaginations run wild. And they come and they're like, Daddy, 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 look what I, what I made for you. And a lot of times I have to ask them, what is that? because I have no idea. And so they tell me, and, and there's somewhere it's like really, you know, it's awesome. And I know they're probably watching. So Caitlin, Brianne, Adrian, I am talking about you guys. And so there's times where they'll draw like unicorns and rainbows and, and all these things. And what the greatest part about it is the joy that they have when they come and tell me, daddy, I have something for you. I made you something. I, I want to give you something. And it's so funny because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kids. It's kids' drawings, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Sometimes I don't know what they're trying to draw, but it's okay because I'm not worried about the drawing. What I'm more focused on is the heart that they have as they come saying, Daddy, Daddy, I have this for you. And you know what's so amazing is if me being a dad doesn't really care about what their drawings look like, I can only imagine how our Father in heaven reacts when we come to him saying, Father, I have something for you. And when it's our tithes and offering, what joy, when we bring it with such joy, I can just imagine how it touches his heart because he does something great with it. He takes it to reach more and more people and change their lives and draw them closer to him to show them that he too is their Father who loves them very much. And that's why it's such a joy for us here at New Hope Church to give because even in the midst of what's been going on from 2020 even to now, God is continuing to move in the lives of his people. And as you can see online right now, right there, we have four ways that you can give, whether it's through our online service or whether it's uh, through our app, maybe even, even uh, mailing in your checks to our church office here, or even signing up for our text to give that helps set up a profile that you can give online. There's so many ways that we can give, but let us remember, it's not the giving, it's why we give. We give because we are loved by our Father in heaven. So would you join me as we pray for our tithes and offerings tonight? Lord, we come before you right now, and, and Father, we just thank you so much for all the things that you have been doing, Lord. And Lord, what, what joy it is to see all the great things that you're doing. So right now, as we give you our tithes and offerings, Lord, we do so, as the Bible says, we want to do so with a cheerful heart, knowing that, Lord, it's because you love us that we are so wanting to just give you as you take it 
and transform lives, Lord, as you touch people's hearts, as you change people's eternities. And Lord, I pray right now for those who give, remind them that what we're doing has eternal rewards because of how much you love us. That Lord, you allow us to be part of your plan to reaching people far from you and, re- and letting them see who you are. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. We continue to praise you for being our Father who loves us in heaven. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Well, last year, we started going through the entire Bible, and we're not done yet. In fact, tonight, Pastor Marsha is going to continue with the book of Corinthians. Let's give it up for Pastor Marsha. All right. Well, thank you, Pastor Ben. And I love stories about your kids. And he has five kids. I have ten grandkids. Now, I had nothing to do with that. I just have 10 grandkids. And I have my second to the youngest, Ava, is five, and the kid is a daredevil. I mean, like, she has no fear. So for Christmas, she got this um, motorized scooter that you can actually ride. And what she likes to do is we have a hill. Our driveway is kind of a hill, not steep, but it's a hill. And you can ride this um, scooter down the hill and then turn right onto the street. So what she'll do is she'll start at the top of the hill, and get it going as fast as she can, and then she likes to go down, boom, right into the street. Now, I get it, because when I was younger kid, I used to go to my auntie's house, and I used to take our skateboard with the metal wheels up to the top of her hill, up that hill, and ride that down, and you'd pick it up speed, and I loved the feel. The problem is, I'm not that kid anymore. I'm grandma. And so, our house is about two houses in from Kaiwalani. And so all I can think about as my granddaughter is riding her scooter down the hill is the car that could turn on and not have enough time to see her. So I made this rule. Well, Grandpa made this rule. You can ride down to the top of the hill, the bottom of the hill, and then you have to stop, and you have to look. Two ways to make sure there's no cars coming. Now, I know that's a bit of a killjoy, but we do that because we love her, and we want her to be kept safe. Now, I think we could say the same thing about the Apostle Paul. See, he loved the church in Corinth, and he wanted what was best for them. So he wrote a couple of letters that were very corrective in nature. And he didn't write it out of spite or anger or because he was mean. He wasn't being a killjoy. He wrote it out of love and compassion. In fact, in his second letter to the Corinthians, a letter that is sometimes referred to as the hard letter, He wrote, We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. See, Paul's goal in his letter was that the church be restored to its original state. But before we go any further, let's see how the producers of the Bible Project introduces 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while, Paul moved on to start churches in other cities, and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems, and that's why he wrote this letter. 
It's broken up into five main parts along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics, but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here's what he does in each section. He describes the problem, but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they're actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let's dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1 through 4, the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left, a guy named Apollos and then Peter. And people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy with his stepmother, a number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says it's not fine. And with the gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus's love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences, like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat, that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the gospel. He says, Our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you're in a situation where there's meat that's been dedicated to another god, and there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh, look, hey, Christians worship Jesus, and they can worship other gods too. Paul says, if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus, and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, listen, as Christians, we believe God is the creator of all things, including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there's no one around who's going to misunderstand your actions and you're hungry, 
eat up. You're free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us. And so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering. And so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages. There were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God, and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic, and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters, Paul helps them think, first of all, about the purpose of this gathering, to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says the gathering is a place where God's Spirit should be working through everybody, and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It's one, but it has all these different parts, and each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people, all for the building up of the church. That's a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel, God's love. And love is a key word in these chapters, too. Love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others. So Paul applies all this to the Corinthians' problems. Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead, which means this. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that's what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel. And that's so true. The gospel 
The good news of Jesus is not just good moral advice on how to live, nor is it simply instructions on how to grow in your own spiritual lives. It encompasses both, but it's so much more than that. It is an announcement that the kingdom of God has come, and the king of that kingdom has arrived. And the truth, that's, this truth is what drove Paul in everything that he did and all that he wrote. Now, when many of us hear 1 Corinthians, our minds automatically shift to 1 Corinthians 13, what many people refer to as the love chapter. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 may be the most famous and most often quoted chapter in the Bible. In fact, I just had the honor of officiating a wedding this weekend, and I used 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 because of what Paul wrote about love. And while love is a central theme in Paul's letter, he wrote the letter to the church he planted in order to correct some issues that had developed in his absence. See, after he left, there was division between people, there was moral compromise, there was religious chaos, and there were arguments about Jesus. But to Paul, this was symptomatic of a much larger problem. He was bothered that the church, the representative of God's kingdom, looked much more like the world than it did the kingdom of God. And that was a problem. And because of his concern, he wrote a letter that was full of information, it was full of correction, encouragement, and direction. But Paul didn't correct on his own authority. He corrected on the authority of the gospel he preached. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, the message of the gospel was not added to Paul's message. It was his message. And it was of utmost importance to him. That's why each time he corrected error within the church, he measured the error back to the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has come into the world to rescue us from the penalty of sin and restore us in our relationship with our Father. However, it captures more than that. Jesus came to usher in another kingdom. He did not come to set up a kingdom of man or a kingdom here on earth. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to God's people and then to make us ambassadors of that kingdom. Now, an ambassador is an important official who works for a foreign country. He represents his or her country into another country, and he's um, accepted by that country, but he never takes on the citizenship of the country that he's in. He continues being a citizen of the country that he represents. And you and I, we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of his kingdom. We were never meant to be citizens here on earth. And if we let that truth shape our perspective, it switches how we respond to everything that we encounter. So how do we do it? How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God while living here on earth? Well, if we do three things, each of us will be uncompromising representatives of the kingdom of God. And if you're taking notes, the first note is make everything, measure everything to the gospel. Measure everything to the gospel. Now, when my husband and I got married, <clears throat> he wanted a haircut. And 
I have no idea why he thought it would be a good idea. But he says to me, you cut my hair. And I'm like, not happening. I'm not going to cut your hair. And he goes, no, it's really simple. I can walk you through it. Now, you have to know something about Tom that is not true about me, but that's true about him. See, he can figure out how to make things work, and he makes it work good. So he thinks that he's going to walk me through this. So he says, I will just tell you what to do. So he sits in the chair, gives me a comb and a pair of scissors, and he says, what you do is you take my hair, and you pull it up, and you hold it, you measure about an inch, and you cut it off. Then you take a little bit of this lock, and you pull up another lock, and you measure to that, and you cut it off. He thought it was simple. He forgot that I get bored easily. And then after a while, I got tired of pulling up locks of hair and measuring to the next lock. And I thought, by this point, I can eyeball it. And so I just started pulling hair anywhere and thinking, OK, that looks about the same length, and that looks the same length. And when we were done, we were getting married in a couple of days, and this was not going to pass. So we ended up going to a barber shop to get it fixed. And I remember sitting there as the barber looks at my husband, well, soon-to-be husband, and says, who cut your hair? So Tom tells him the story, and the guy says to him, never, ever let her touch your hair again. And I've never touched it since. But you know where the problem came in? It happened when I got impatient, and I figured that I didn't need to measure to anything, that I could just eyeball it. And I think sometimes... We do the same thing in our walk as Christians. We base our decisions and our actions off of things that we think we know, and we don't realize we may be missing the mark. And as Paul directed and corrected the church in Corinth, he brought them back to the gospel. He brought them back to the kingdom of God. And at the core of God's kingdom is his love, which Paul clearly described in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And when they faced division or felt divisive, when they faced moral decisions, when there were questions or disagreements about their church gatherings, Paul said, come back to love. Measure your response and action by what love would do. And what, when Paul described love, it wasn't that he said, I want you to feel happy, I want you to feel accepted, go ahead and, make you, and do whatever makes you feel happy, it was a love that measured to the example that Jesus set when he walked on this earth. And as we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, which are records of Jesus' time on earth, we see that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God a lot. But he was a far different type of king than the religious leaders or the people expected. And because Jesus didn't measure to their idea of what God's deliverer would look like, the religious leaders rejected him. And for the entirety of his ministry here on earth, Jesus faced constant questioning, attacks, and rejection by the religious leaders. Yet Jesus didn't concern himself with winning them over or impressing them. Instead, he went about setting an example of what the kingdom of God looked like. 
He spent time with the outcasts in the community. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. And he called people to repentance and to righteousness. And later, before Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, would ask him, Are you a king? But Jesus replied saying, My kingdom is not of this world. See, Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of God. And everything that he did was to establish the presence of God's kingdom here on earth. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and defined love, he used Jesus' life as an example, and he said, no one should look to their own good, but to the good of others. Paul's commitment to measuring everything to the gospel can be seen in the second letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. So let's take a look at what the Bible Project says about 2 Corinthians. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all, of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit, and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor. He earned a meager living through manual labor. He was under constant persecution and suffering. He was often homeless. And to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul. They were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to a recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And this is ridiculous to Paul. 
Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. And so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's Spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful just like Jesus himself. Now this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which, at its heart, is a story of generosity. Paul says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super apostles. So they came to Corinth promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? 
he can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged a lot, Paul earned his own living. But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They're not living like transformed followers of Jesus, and so he invites them once again to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. So in Paul's second letter to Corinth, he addresses the way they choose to follow leaders, the credentials that they demand, that they're not following through on their commitment to give. But in this letter, he reminds them he didn't come to represent himself but he represents God. He wrote, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. See, Paul wasn't trying to win the Corinthians over to his side. He wasn't trying to win them over to his way of doing things or even of his way of following God. He cut out the middleman and he directed them straight to God. Collecting followers isn't what motivated him. People's relationship with God did. And he wanted them to have a right relationship with God. He wasn't building churches and discipling people to make a name for himself. He was doing it to bring people to God and to help build the kingdom of God. It wasn't for his glory. It was for God's. And that's the second point. Build only God's kingdom. He wrote to them, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This earth, our lives here, our political, our financial, and our religious systems, they're going to pass. They're not going to last. They're only temporary. The only thing that we can do that will last into eternity is build the kingdom of God. Paul knew that. That's why he was driven to do and write the things that he did. He was building the kingdom of God. He wasn't building his own kingdom, nor was he helping someone else build theirs. To him, there was one kingdom, God's. And there was one king, Jesus. 
And he was focused on building that kingdom. In a letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be glorious like his body. See, we don't belong here. We are made for a kingdom that will last into eternity. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and we're here to serve him as ambassadors to his kingdom. We are not here to set up citizenship here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not called to take on the citizenship of this world, nor are we called to build our kingdom here or to become distracted by building someone else's. We are to build the kingdom of God. And the way that we do that best is by investing in people. And that's the third point. Build people. If Jesus came only to rescue us from our sin and bring us to heaven, then the minute we said yes to Jesus, we'd be gone. We'd be here on earth. We'd say yes. Next thing you know, we'd be in heaven. But God left us here. And he gave us an assignment, and that assignment was given to us by Jesus himself. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're not here to build a kingdom here on earth. We're here to build God's kingdom, and we do that by building people. And nobody understood that better than Paul. In his letter to the Corinthians, he boasted not on his accomplishments, but on the Corinthians himself. He said, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stones, but on tablets of human hearts. So how do we build God's kingdom? We build people. A lot of you know Pastor Wayne Cordero. And he was here for, he was actually here, he helped build this church. And he was here when Pogs became popular. Do you guys remember Pogs? So somewhere along the line, someone got this bright idea that Pogs would be the next collector's item. And if you were to save Pogs, you would become rich. So Pastor Wayne writes in his book, um, which I forget, but he writes that he got into collecting pogs, and he thought, I'm going to become rich. So he approached Pastor Noel Campbell, who was here on staff at that time. And Pastor Noel was this man who epitomized loving the way that Jesus did. Like when you talked to him, down in your soul you felt love. And when he looked at you and said, I sure love you, you felt loved all the way down to your soul. So one day, Pastor Wayne goes to Pastor Noel, and he says, I'm going to become rich. And he goes, you know, I have a question. Some people collect cars. Some people collect baseball cards. Some people collect pogs. He goes, what do you collect, Pastor Noel? And Pastor Noel just looks at him. He smiles, and he said simply, I collect friends. And he meant it. He genuinely loved people. And he wanted to spend as much time as possible in the cultivation and building of relationships. And here at New Hope Church, that's what drives us. That's why we do what we do. 
We have home groups and small groups to help others continue to grow. And when COVID hit and everything shut down, we continue to have our services online, and we still do. And when we have those services online, you don't just watch a service. We actually have people who are hosting so that if you have a question or something you want to know, right there in the chat, you can ask. We still give people opportunities to respond to the gospel, and we invite Jesus to be the Lord of their lives. Everything we do is not to grow the church, but to build God's kingdom. And we build God's kingdom when we build people. Jamie, you can come up. Pastor Sheldon frequently reminds us that everything that we do is attached to a soul. Every soul has a name. And God knows the name of every single soul because every soul is valuable to him. Um, the worship team can come up. Because all people are valuable to God, he is equipped, empowered, and called each one of us to build his kingdom. And God's kingdom is not a temporary kingdom here on this earth. It's his. And it's for all eternity. And that's the kingdom that we need to build. We're not building a kingdom of man. We're not building a financial kingdom. We're not building a political kingdom. We're not building a religious kingdom. We're building a kingdom of God. And we build his kingdom by building people. So I'm going to leave you with three questions that you can think about or talk about. The first question is this. What are you focused on? If you think about the past week, past month, what is it that consumed you? What have you talked the most about? What have you invested the most in? What are you focused on? The second is which kingdom do you think you've been representing recently? And the third one, what are some things that you can do to build the kingdom of God? So what are you focused on? Which kingdom do you think you've been representing recently? And what are some things that you can do to start building the kingdom of God? Because we're not here to build our kingdom. We're here to build God's. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming as a king and not coming just to show us how to live morally right or anything like that, but to come and set up the kingdom of your Father here on earth. Lord, thank you for calling us to be a part of growing your kingdom, of moving, moving your kingdom forward, and of advancing it. So Lord, teach us. Teach us how to live as ambassadors of your kingdom, to realize that our citizenship is not here on earth, but it's in heaven. And may everything that we do, everything that we say, be measured back to the gospel, may be measured back to love, and when people see us, would they be able to see just a taste of what your glory is, of what your kingdom is? And may that invite people to know you. We love you, we praise you, and we're grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.